If you have a Bible this morning, I want you to turn to the book of Ephesians and the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. We looked briefly at Jeremiah last week. I want to spend a little bit of time there this morning as we begin. But first, in Ephesians 1, if you were here last week, we used Ephesians chapter 3, talking in Ephesians chapter 3 about the fullness of God being the result of God's love. Being filled with the fullness of God, really the whole message could have been said in the sentence, is achievable, is possible because of the love of God upon a man and the things that God does because he loves a man and God brings forth himself in those people. The very fullness of God, something that escapes our reality, it's hard for us to define ourselves like that, that us, knowing how we were, sometimes how we are, being filled with the very fullness of God. But it's there, it's in your Bible, it's possible. Now in Ephesians 1, I want to talk this morning about God's eternal love. We get that from Jeremiah 31, but we'll get there in just a moment. God's eternal love, love forever, never ceases. That's why it's so hard, as he said in Ephesians 3, it's past knowledge. You cannot learn of it. You cannot seek it out by academic methods. God can only reveal it to you. It comes by revelation. And when it does... It is awesome. It is wonderful. It is, I can't describe it myself. I just know the effect it has once you realize what this is all about. I don't know that many in the church do, but I hope before it's over, we all will. I mean, love is a wonderful thing, especially as God reveals it to his people. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Isn't that good? Amen. Not will, not might, has. You see that? Amen. Everything you need has already been given. Amen. Hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, for this reason, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. There is a lot of preaching there. We don't want to spend all morning there, but I do want to make a point. He said... Verse 4, again, that God chose us. Now, all of us in here assume that is us. Me, you, all of us. Everybody that goes to church, it is assumed, was chosen from the foundation of the world to be like he describes. And we'll leave it there for a minute. We'll leave it there. But he says that from the foundation of the world, God made a choice. Before you were born... Before you did anything right, before you did anything wrong, before you decided one day to say, Lord, save me. And God, well, I knew one day he would do that, and therefore I will save him. Before you were on this earth to make that decision, God made a choice of you to be his. 
And you cannot say that he chose the whole world because the Bible describes the world as being condemned and all the people that are in it and of it. So we know it's pretty selected. And God is the one that does the determination and the selection. And he said, from the foundation of the world, he said, he chose you to be his, that we should be holy. Do you see that? Would you agree with me this morning that God describes the kind of life his people will live will be a holy life? We may not have a definition of holy, and it may be up in the air and to your own interpretation. A lot of people like that. Let me interpret it myself. Don't preach on it. Don't define it. Don't teach on holiness because I have an idea of what it is, and I think I'm all right. We like that in the church. Just don't explain what the Bible means. Just generalize it. Don't explain it. Well, anyway, he says, according as he has chose us, that we should be holy and without blame. Wow. Before him in love. Loving people affected by the love of God. To the point that they are willing to give up anything that would make them guilty before God. They want to live blameless, so they let go of everything that could do that. And they give themselves the path of holiness to live. You know, if we're all willing to be honest for a moment this morning, there's not a lot of people you know like that. In church, out of church. But it's what God plainly says in his Bible. I don't know why we don't hear more of it, but it's there. And it says in verse 5 concerning this choice, having predestinated us. What if you said predetermined? God made a determination before there was a you that you would be his. And he didn't say whether you want to or not. He just says that God, who can do no wrong... Is righteous, rules over the earth, and the earth is his, and all the things that are in the world. He decided one day before there was a world that you would be his. You would be a sinner first. You would be an unregenerate soul on this earth, acting very ugly. God knew that too. All we like sheep have gone astray. He knew that. He knew that man left alone. To do his own thing will always corrupt himself, always. He'll try to cover that over with religion, but he can't. But he said, having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself. Now, why would God do it this way? It says here at the end of it, according to the good pleasure of his will. If we were having a little bit of a class this morning, I was going to ask you some questions. And I said to you, why would God choose you? If he's chosen you, I'm assuming that he did. Why would he choose you? Why did he choose you? Look at all the ones he did not choose. And you know that's true. Why would he choose you? What was it about you? You weren't even born. You'd never done anything wrong, never had a chance to do anything wrong. And yet he chose you. Why? Because he wanted to. How's that? According to the good pleasure 
of his will. Now, you'll see that in other verses in the Bible, worded a little differently, but saying the same thing. God works all things after the pleasure of his will. The earth and all that's in it, the very fullness of this earth belongs to God, and he does with it as he pleases to accomplish his plan that what he said will come to pass just the way he said it. He's in total control of all events in this world. That's why we can have confidence about our tomorrows. He's already in our tomorrows. And because he has set his love upon us, he will never stop loving us. You can't be bad enough, ugly enough, low enough, or vile enough for God to quit loving you. That doesn't mean that you can go ahead and be vile and ugly and do whatever you want to. It doesn't say that either. Because when God begins to love a man, a man begins to change. When God begins to love, eternal love, divine, everlasting love, when it begins to settle on a person's life and heart, and things begin to focus spiritually, and you begin to see something you've never seen before in a way you've never seen it before. This is the work of God. This is what God does to people like us in order to get our attention and to direct us in a way that he won't have to judge because he's righteous and he cannot allow sin. He said in Psalms 5, he hates all workers of iniquity. Strange sound to our modern ears, but it's the truth. We have a life to live, folks. We have a path to walk. There is a plow we must hold on to. There is a decision that we have to make that involves separation and letting go of and doing things differently than we've ever done. To walk in newness of life, it's before us. It cannot be denied. It cannot be set aside. There are no substitutes. There are no excuses. It is there, and God shows it to us. Then how would you explain with such a revelation in the church that so many people in the church in the end will not be ready to go. There will be wheat and tares growing together in the kingdom. They will be there. And it will be a test of a lot of people's life. Do you want to be like everybody else or do you want to be like Jesus? You want to be like those that make excuses? Well, I know I should, man. I tell you. you want to be like that? Or do you want to, you know, say, I hate what I did, and I'm not going to do it anymore. That won't happen again. You want to be like that? See, it all depends, folks. When it comes right down to it, it really, as you'll see in the next verse, it really depends on who you love. If you love yourself, and it's called self-preservation, you do whatever you can to keep me, my ways, alive. If you love God, you're willing to let go of everything. Matthew 10, if you love anybody, your mother, father, anybody more than me, you're not worthy of him. Wow, what a test. Everything that we've ever known near and dear to us in this world that's held us and grabbed a hold of us that we seek and desire so earnestly, Jesus comes along and says, let go of it. And it's not easy. But it depends on who has captured my affections. Who do I love? Now go to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, now notice, this is the nature of God, whether it was in another context at another time or applicable to us today. Truth is truth, you know that. 
I have loved thee with an everlasting love. That's my title, eternal love, everlasting. No end to it. We can't even find the beginning of God's love. It's like that ring a man places on a girl's finger. It has no beginning and it has no end. It's just continuous. It just goes on and on. It never stops. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And he said, therefore, because I have, he said, with loving kindness, I have drawn thee. And we have learned from the scriptures, not only did he draw thee, which means there was a time you were distant. There was a time you were away. Maybe like, I know my life better than yours. There was a time I was far away from God with the way I lived. And then there was a time that God drew me. There was that day of that eternal wooing, that time when God began to deal with hearts begin to define your sin where you couldn't escape it. It was real. You knew you were. And God began to draw you to him. I remember the day well, June 30th, 1968, sitting uncomfortably in the church I grew up in because one day I became aware that before God, I really was a sinner. I used to take for granted everybody's a sinner, nobody's perfect, and that was my theology, I guess. One day, it no longer worked. It was a revelation to God of my sinfulness, attitude, actions, goofiness, stupidity. Everything about me that defined me was sinful before God. I lived not in any way to please God or to advance his kingdom or his glory. I lived for myself. Church helped me do that. It made me appear to be a good boy. Everything about me was vile and deceitful. And in that kind of a context, that kind of a creature, God drew me out. Why? Just as I am. And verse 2, waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot. To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. It was never more real than that day. Never. Never more real was the door opened. Never more real was the sin obvious. And never more real was the invitation given. And there was something compelling about it to where I headed to the front of the church. That's what we did in the Christian church. I went to the front of the church. I knelt, weeping. I asked God to save me and forgive me of all my sins. Now, he drew me like that. I don't know how he drew you. I don't know what your testimony is, how you define when you got saved. Do you all know the day you got saved? Do you know the hour that God birthed you into his kingdom? Boy, I don't know how you could not know that. I don't know how you could not know that moment when the most radical change in your life that could ever take place just did. I don't know how you could not know that. Boy, I knew when it was. I knew who I was kneeling behind. Bob Morgan was in front of me. I was kneeling over him. There's a return air duct. I call it a floor furnace, but it was a return air duct, and I was kneeling on that and had little waffle-looking things on my knees. I know where I was. I knew exactly what was going on. It was 90 degrees that day. It was hot. I was crying. I was weeping. And a loving God, 
the eternal God who we just go to church and sing about and talk about and plead with. One day he drew me out of my miserable, wretched life and brought me to him. I don't remember a whole lot of words being said. I remember a whole lot of thoughts. I was fearful. I was fearful what you all would think. Then I was afraid I'd mess up. I wouldn't be able to do it like all them people I used to go complain about. You know, they go forward on Sunday and they're drunk on Wednesday. I said that a lot. Now it was my turn. Boy, it was a fearful moment. I'll never forget the day driving home in a green 1965 Buick to 230 Millview Circle in Sellersburg, Indiana. Driving in that driveway, getting out of the car, walking in the house. The newness of life, which I could not define and understand, was... You ever felt like... <sighs> but felt kind of silly if you did that, because people might be watching, you know, and... You know, but there was something exciting about it. And you get in the house, and Bonnie, we were new. She went forward, too. And I remember saying... Let's pray. Never done that in my life, but I did that day. I think we knelt over that little footstool there in the living room. Do you, you remember that? You remember you told me to get down and pray, and, and I said, all right. <laughs> no, we knelt there, asked God to make us strong. If I ever got weak, that he would make her strong to bring me back. If she ever got weak, that he would make me strong to bring her back, that God would keep us together all the days of our life and give us and help us to make us do what he wants us to do. That was a long time ago, 1968. That was last century. What a life. And, and yet there is so much more today, I guess, being revealed now than was ever revealed then about God's love. I think I took all of that for granted. You know, we go to church, we're loved. We punch our ticket when we come in, bring our Bible, therefore we're loved. And you ask any church member, most church members will say, you know, like Peter on the seashore, remember this time in John 20 when Jesus confronted Peter and said, feed my sheep. Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Are you willing to lay it all down for me? I mean, sacrificially love me. Whether you get anything back or not, are you willing to give all of yourself to me? Peter said, you know what, Lord? I like to go to church. I like to sing the songs. I like to talk to my friends after church. I enjoy the feeling I get whenever I, I'm in a sermon in a good way. I like the idea that I'm trying to do better than I have. And I, I like the idea that I'm, uh, you know, I'm better than I used to be. And I, I do enjoy, you know, like you said, I enjoy following you around here in Galilee. I enjoy sitting here by the Galilean Sea and talking to you on this hillside. I enjoyed when down in Jerusalem. I, I like following you around and listen to all the wise things that you say. You're special, Jesus. You're so special. But I cannot tell you that I love you the way you want me to. I guess that's the first time in his life he was ever willing to admit. I've assumed that I am what you wanted, and then I realized by what happened here recently, I'm not willing to lay down my life for you. I love myself more than I love you. I love my pleasures, my hobbies, my job, my career, my family. I love my time more than I love you. 
I'm not willing to give up this or that in order to do things your way. I don't love you that much. But I really enjoy the religious routine. I, I do. I really do. Sometimes I enjoy sitting around talking about the Bible, and I enjoy my friends, and yeah, I, I do. How many of you know there are two kinds of love in the Bible? There's a love that likes. There's a love that enjoys. But it's not a love that commits. Now, the kind of love that God has for you and me is eternal. It will never change. There will never be more of it. Love is love. God is love. And when God loves you, eternity loves you. The creator, the master loves you. He singled you out to be his. He drew you to him out of your sinfulness. He brought you to him. And dull as we are of understanding and as difficult and thick-headed as we are, he is so patient and week after week and year after year, he keeps showing us things or he lets things happen to us to get our attention. Remember the psalmist said, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. I would have never learned them if I hadn't had some of these things happen in my life. And you read the history of God's people, things were always happening to them. They said one time, Lord, have you disowned us? Have you forgotten us? And he said, a mother could sooner forget her nursing child than I could ever forget you. I have graven you on the palms of my hands. I didn't choose you to let go of you. I didn't draw your ignorant life out of the world to let go of you. I knew what I got when I got you. I knew how corrupt you were and how difficult you were. And how foolish you were. God knew that about all of us. He brought us out. Planted us in his courts, the Bible said. And there he began his loving revelation. The attachment of himself to us. To make it more and more to us what it's all about. How that God loves you. God is with you. God is for you. God will keep you. God will supply your needs. God will take you to heaven. God will keep you from falling. God will, God will, and God will. And one day it began to break through. Why? Because he chose you to be his. You're not going to wander through this life without knowing this. Somebody beside you might not care, but you'll care. Because God singled you out as a special project. I praise God for that. I'm a special project, and I, you know, I could say more about that. But he chose me. Why didn't he choose my friends who were magna cum laude's and summa cum laude and all of that and presidents of the classes and the best this and the best that and the most this? Why didn't he pick them? Because God didn't pick anybody because of their character or their nature. Because he hadn't been born yet. Hadn't had a chance to express anything about your life. Those that are his, he chose them. Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 19, he says, I know, Jesus said, I know whom I have chosen. Do you know that Jesus sovereignly picked who he wanted? Now, we don't like that. We don't. As Christians, in this modern era, 
We don't like the idea that that's true. We like to think that we can just frivolously live in this life and have a big time. Go to church. Put a little money in the box and maybe help a little bit here or do something. But, you know, we just like to think that we can do all this and we're good enough for heaven. We're too good to go to hell. We're not that bad. Because we define God in human terms. We define God from our natural law and our natural way of living. We would understand that nobody is perfect. We would give everybody lots of license to do wrong and go this way and that way. Well, you know, they're just people. You can't be perfect. We would say that. And therefore, we assume that God would say that. But he doesn't because he's holy. He's separate. He told him in Exodus chapter 33, he said, the way the world will know that you are mine is that you will be separate from all the world. You won't be like them. You'll withdraw yourself from them. You won't mingle with that and try to learn those ways and incorporate that into your life. You won't do that. God said, if my presence goes with you, this is what you will do. So throughout the Bible, we begin to read and to see that God really cares about his own. Jesus said in John 17, in verse 6, he said, those you have given me, I have kept. He said in John 17, he says, I'm not praying for the world when he was in that last prayer he had before the garden. He said, I'm not praying for the world. We don't like that. Why wouldn't he? God loves everybody. God loves the world. You know, the children saying, little children of the world, God loves everybody. God loves everything. Fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, John 3, 16, God so loved God loves everybody. And how could you say that his love is only deposited on a few and not everybody? Doesn't God love everybody? No. It doesn't say that. Now, we don't like to hear that. Because, again, there is an emotional side of us that has already determined what God loves and how God loves. And it's basically like we do. Because we've sort of humanized God. We brought him down to our level, defined him that way. We preach that. People like that because they're like God. And everything's fine. And when you go to a funeral, you know that's what you preach. He all, you know, well, he meant well, he tried well, or she was, you know, and everybody's fine. But when you begin to read the Bible, you begin to see that we haven't done justice to God. Because that's not the way he says it. That's not what God says. Jesus said, no man can pluck you out of my hand. Didn't he say that? He said, I've graven you on the palms of my hand. Nobody can pluck you out of my hand. And he said in Romans 8.35, he said, who will ever be able to separate you from the love of God? Then he mentions maybe 10 things, things that we all face, trouble that we all have in this world, things that... Some people stumble and quit over. He said, but these things will not separate you from the love of God. They may separate a lot of people who gave up and quit, but they won't separate you. This is how God, as I'm seeing it, is showing himself to us in the Bible. He said, I'm your God. You're my choice. 
I pray that everybody sitting in here this morning is his choice. You know, my time this week, God, the worst thing I can imagine is missing heaven. Coming this far and thinking you're all right, but assuming that, you know, well, I preach and everything. Oh, God, I don't want a Matthew 7 experience. I never knew you. I never knew you because the Bible says many, and we'll get to it, maybe. He said, if a man knows me, this is what a man will do. And a lot of people aren't doing that, so I don't know that they know God. They know about God. But again, they know him the way they want him to be, not the way he is. And so we ask the question, why would God elect some and, or choose some and not others? We call it election, God's sovereign choice from the foundation of the world as to who would be saved, who would be his, if you want to call it that. Turn to Romans chapter 9 because there's something, something doesn't seem right. That God would set his love on certain undeserving sinners and choose them to salvation before the world began. I thought we had to live and make decisions, and then God would make a decision as to who we want to pick. You know, he knew that one day in life we were going to do this or do that, and, and he said, now I know that Hamilton one day will ask the Lord to save him, so therefore I'm going to choose him to salvation. Well, that would make his choice based on my works. It wouldn't be from eternity. It would be in time. He knew, well, he knew one day I'd be on this earth, and therefore he knew I would make this decision, therefore he chose me. That's, that's not the way it works. Again, you weren't even born when all these things happened, when these words were spoken. Amen. This is God's world. This is God's kingdom. You know how much of a privilege it is to be here? Listen to me. You think of all the people who have no interest Think of people you know that have no interest in this. Not interested in it at all. Their limit for church is once or twice a year, quick, short. That's good enough. And you could never say those people love the Lord. They don't. They love themselves. And so when it comes to election, we think, well, that doesn't seem to be Right. Well, now Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 9. And it's not an easy chapter, as some of you know that have read this before in times past and teachings on it. It's a challenging, to say the least, a challenging chapter in the Bible. Look at verse 11. It defines that Rebecca and Isaac had twins. Rebecca was carrying twins. And those twins were called Jacob and Esau. And it says, verse 11, now notice, follow me. This I want you to follow me with. For the children being not yet born, either having done any good or evil, now here we go, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, that's God. It was said unto her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. Uh, the Greek word myseo, 
For hatred is not like a despised and detestable, odious thing as much as it is somewhat different than agape. It's just I have no interest in love in that person in the way that love is defined. I, I, I don't have that. God causes the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. God blesses the wicked people in this world because you're still in the world. You are. When you're taken out of the world, there's no reason for God to be favorable to the world. And that's when that terrible end time comes, Jacob's trouble and so forth. But it seems like the first response to verse 13 is that's not fair. Again, see, we make our rules. God ought to do this. This is the way God probably does it. This is how I see it. Well, I think God would do this. And that's our theology. We leave this out because we want this that is written to match that which we believe. And if it doesn't, then we either say, I'm not ready for that, or, well, that's just nobody can understand it. And depart and go from it. But he said, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. They weren't even born. They hadn't done any right or wrong. I'm asking you, is that fair? They asked Paul, listen, verse 14, what shall we say to this? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God unright? Is that not right? That's what we would say. Well, that's not right. Well, I would love them more than that. Well, you're not God. And then he goes on because he's still talking about it. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of you and I that wills to do anything, nor of a person that is trying to do right and running, but it's of God who shows mercy. Put your finger right there for just a moment and go to the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. Just go back to Malachi chapter 1. Verse 2, this is the way God begins this book. He said, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Now you say, well, how have you loved us? Because things weren't going well at this time for his people. They weren't doing well because of the way they were living. God says, I have loved you. He didn't stop loving them. He said, I have loved you, yet you say, how have you loved us? God would say, was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I love Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. I think they still are. Tell you the truth, the way they act, they're wild. How could they be any other way? You know what tames the wicked heart? You know what changes a vile soul? Love. A revelation of it. Not just trying to memorize the word and verses about it, but what the word means to be loved. To love. For God to love me. Think of it. The creator of all the world. As far as I'm concerned, I'm the only one that existed. He brought me to him. He brought me into his banqueting table. 
his abundance that we read in Ephesians 1, and his banner over me, Song of Solomon 2 and verse 4, his banner over me is love. And for the rest of my natural life, a loving God will be loving towards me. In every way that is necessary, from correcting me to chastening me, to fixing me, to turning me around on the right path, whatever he has to do to get me in the right path, he will. And then he will say when it's over, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of the Lord that have been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why would he give that to me? All I did was try to go wrong. And he determined himself upon me to make me go right. Ezekiel 11, he said, I will put a new heart and a new spirit in you, and I'll take away the heart of stone and put a heart of flesh and spirit in you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Otherwise, if you don't, you will have to be judged along with the rest of the world. That's 1 Corinthians 11. You mean to tell me that God is doing all of this work from heaven's side to keep me from being judged? So that he can show favor to me? Yeah. See, loving kindness in Jeremiah 31, the word loving kindness is also the word mercy. It's the word that God uses for mercy. For those that are undeserving, like grace. There was nothing about us that was deserving of any of these things. But let's go on in Romans 9. Again, verse 16, it is not a man that willeth nor him that runneth as far as getting right with God, but it's God that shows mercy. Verse 17, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout the earth. Is that fair? That he raised up a Pharaoh in order to show in him, through him, his great power and glory on this earth. The greatest testimony ever in all of time came out of Egypt. It did. You know the rest of that. How God did this in 40 years there's no water in the desert to feed 2 million people. There's no grass growing in a desert to feed a million cattle. I've seen that desert, been in part of it. What a terrible place. And yet 40 years, they wander there and you think, well, they would burn up. No, there was a cloud by day. There was a fire by night. Quail came in. They had meat. Manna fell every day. They had food. No labor, no work, just gutting them and frowning them, I guess. How God cared for his people, but that's what he does. He said, I drew you out. I not only drew you out of Egypt, but I drew you out unto myself. You're far from the way I want you to be, but I'm going to give you my law. I'm going to send my prophets and my priests throughout the extent of your time on this earth, and I'm going to teach you my ways. And the psalmist will write, teach me thy way, O Lord, that I may walk in thy truth and unite my heart to fear your name. Otherwise, I can only go to church and be religious. 
I can't be that holy person that I should be. And how wonderful, maybe it's an aging moment, but how wonderful it does is life has slowed down a little bit. And you begin to notice more things than just tomorrow. And you begin to realize how much as you look back at your past, how much God has been involved in your life, making things work. Supplying needs when you didn't deserve to have needs supplied. Answering prayers when your faith was really more of a whine than it was faith. And he did it anyway. Why? I guess you'd say because he loved us. Well, doesn't he love everybody? You know, he loves me. He loves me. He loves my wife. I want him to love all my children. I can't make him do that. I want him to. I want them to experience what his love does to them, what his love can do to anybody. I want them to experience that. This is my seed. He called them the seed of the upright. I want them to know this. I want them to be able to to tell their children about the most important thing in this world is to live lovingly right with God. Nothing is more important than that. Not your dreams, your career, your job, the house on the hill paid for, the new car, the college. All of that stuff pales in light of eternity. All of that happens in the time of a, a vapor of smoke while eternity is timeless. And Jesus said concerning that, for those whom heaven is prepared for, he said, I hath not seen, neither has it entered into the heart of a man to even imagine what is being made for those who love him and will spend eternity with him. We are fools if we live this life loving ourselves instead of God because we perish. I mean, that's going to be plain in the Bible. Again, you may not like it any more than than we like to hear some things about Jesus in the garden. Struggling. Remember that? We had a meeting Wednesday night. And for those of you that weren't here, you know, the description of Jesus in the garden, the different Greek words in a frenzy and agitated in mind, and and there was a, a certain kind of a mental struggle that we had never seen in him, but we don't like to see him that way. We don't like to see Jesus like that. We don't like to see him in any kind of a struggle. We don't like to hear of him crying out on those Galilean hills at night. Why would he cry? He's son of God. We don't like to see that. Don't describe him like, don't tell me this and that. I just want to see him walking on the water, turning water into wine, raising the dead. I want to see that part of Jesus. But you'll also have to see him in the days of his flesh. For it was as a man that he suffered. It was as a man that he died. And when God raised him up, he came back and told Peter, said, do you love me? Peter said, man, I want to. I know I'd prove I don't, but I really, really want to. That's where most of us are this morning, right now. Most of us. My life gets so busy and so cluttered that... I put so many things before God. Well, it's time to pray. I know I should. We ought to read, just read two chapters. I know I should. Well, call so-and-so and tell her you're thinking about her. I know I should. Well, spend a little time. I know I should. I know I should. 
And then we say, well, surely God knows that I know I should, and therefore that counts for something. I'm wrong. I'm not bad enough to be judged, am I? Anyway, let me go on. We'll get off the subject. Let's go back to Romans chapter 9. He told Pharaoh, he said, for this cause I have raised you up that I might show my power. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Does he do that? That's real quiet, isn't it? Could Pharaoh have done anything else? It says more than once in Exodus, I will harden his heart. He may know that he can't win this battle, but when God hardens a man's heart, he still thinks he can. Man's not free. He can't escape. Or in other places, like in Exodus chapter 9, he says, For this cause I have raised thee up, like he said here. And then in Exodus 14, he said, And behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. Those people that saw those plagues that not only devastated Egypt then, but I think it's still devastated because of those ten plagues. That country today is a desolate place, I'm told. All those plagues that happened and destroyed the vegetation, we can't imagine. But God said, tell these things to your children throughout all their generations, how mighty God was. And the only one that didn't suffer any consequences was God's people, because God said, I will draw you out with loving kindness. And they escaped. But he said also in Deuteronomy chapter 2, but he said, Sihon, king of Heshbron, the Lord hath hardened his heart and made his heart obstinate. Let me ask you a question. Could God make a man's heart stubborn and resistant to God? Could he? All right. If he can do that, can he also make your heart soft and pliable to where you want to be saved? So that he can say then in the end to any of us, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And if we read in Ephesians 1, he didn't choose you because you'd done anything because you, you weren't born. He chose you because that was the good pleasure of his will. Nobody needs to throw their hands up <laughs> being more thankful and grateful than those of us who believe we are elect. We don't deserve it. It's hard to say that sometimes. But if you believe you're elect, you'll live like you are. Like Peter said, you'll make your calling and election sure by the way you live. Not by the way you listen. Because anybody can listen. But it's, you got to be a doer and not just a hearer. Let me go on. Joshua chapter 11, he was fighting a, a conglomerate of kings. And he was cleansing the land of Israel and getting rid of all these Havites and Hittites and Amorites and Moabites and otherites and ticks and ticks. As God said, destroy them all and get rid of all of them. Here's what God said that he did in Joshua 11, verse 20. Listen to this. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly. And then it says, because he loved them so much. Doesn't say that. 
you don't want to destroy utterly whom you love. Because the people that he loved were the people that were going to face these people. Let me read it again. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly, and that they might have no favor, but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. Wow. Proverbs says in chapter 16 and verse 4, The Lord hath made all things for himself, even the wicked for the day of evil. That's hard for us to swallow. It doesn't fit our idea of God. Mainly because we really don't know the Lord like God wants to be known. And yet for those who know him personally, you don't see vengeance and harshness and judgment. For those who know him personally, I can see his care and love and compassion and justice and fairness. I do not deserve anything I have or have gotten. I am grateful to God because he gave it to me. He did. That's his nature. God so loved the world that he gave. He gives. Let's go on in Romans chapter 9. Are you still there? Verse 18, therefore he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now you will say then, in verse 19, you will say then, well, well why does he find fault? What good is it to preach the gospel? If some are going to be saved and some aren't going to be saved, why do we even preach? I mean, he's going to save some, he's not going to save everyone. Then why even preach? Because it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save the lost. For one thing, we don't know who they are. We preach to everybody. We want them all to be saved. But God does the saving. I just say, I hope everybody gets it, falls on their faces, and cries out for mercy. I don't know who will. I don't know who won't. I don't know what God knows. I just know that God said, you preach the word. You witness. You testify. You live the life. Let your light so shine. You be ambassadors and representatives of God because he's going to cause somebody to see you, somebody to hear you, somebody's going to talk to you, and God's going to cause them and give them a spirit of repentance, and they're going to get saved. Who are they? I don't know. I would have never saved me, and I doubt if I'd save most of you if I'd been God. I don't know what he sees, but he obviously didn't see good or bad. Because we weren't born yet to be good or bad. I just want to know when I'm sitting here this morning, standing here like you're sitting here. I want to know that I love the Lord. Not just love church services. I want to know that I love him on his terms. I want to know that. I'd hate to preach my whole life. And all of us miss it because we assume we're all right because we're here and we believe in faith. And all. I want to make sure that when it comes right down to microscopes and definitions of life, that God, as he zeroes in, can see all the right things in there. All the things that he does because God is at work both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
So they say, well, why does he find fault? Who can refuse his will? Which is a good question. Verse 20. Nay, but, O man, who art thou to reply against God? Who are we to question who God wants to save? Be glad you're saved. Who are we to tell God that that's not fair? Who are we? He said, shall the thing formed, that, you know, like on the potter's wheel, shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why did you do this? When the potter has every right to, with a lump of clay to make out of that lump of clay whatever he wants, whatever pleases him. Amen. He can make it any way he wants to. If he doesn't like it, he can water it up and start over. Because he's the potter. This is the picture that we have. Verse 21, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another vessel unto a spittoon? Well, I just threw that in for old time's sake. I doubt most of you know what a spittoon is. But anyway, a wastebasket for tobacco juice. Never mind. Verse 22, what if God, what if God? This is his question, not mine. What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Now, they weren't going to make it. Well, let me go on. You read that yourself. And that verse 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which is us, which he hath before Prepared unto glory. That's us. What if he chose to display his wrath in those vessels that were fitted for wrath and display his mercy unto those vessels that were made for his mercy? Is he fair? That's about 10%. Is it fair for God to do with his creation whatever he pleases? God is under no obligation to respond to our rules, our opinions, or our ideas. What he said, that's what he does. Our mind has to be renewed to think like God. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, and quit arguing with God. He said, God will keep us in perfect peace if our mind is stayed on him. Verse 24. Even us, these vessels of glory, whom he hath called, not the Jews only, but also them in Shelby, uh, excuse me, also of the Gentiles. So we're all included in this. We're all there. You see, if we belong to God, if God truly has called you out of darkness... If he truly has called you unto his marvelous light. If he truly has established your goings. You remember those words in Psalm 42? He has lifted us out of the miry clay, set our feet upon a rock, established our going. Remember that? Established our going. He said a lot of people are going to see this happen. A lot of people don't see much out of the church today, but... There are people in the church that people cannot deny are different because there's something unusual about them. It's God. Separate, change, different. And when these things begin to happen, we begin to be changed. 
we begin to do things like God wants us to do. For example, the Bible says, He that is of God heareth God's words. Go back left to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. You can ask yourself, I'll ask you. Don't answer me, just play like you heard what I said. Are you sitting here this morning or watching wherever you're from, across the ocean or all over the country? Are you of God? Are you one of those he's plucked and pulled and planted? Are you? Here's what he says. Let's read it. This is what our Lord Savior said, Jesus Christ. Verse 47. He that is of God heareth God's words. Would you agree to that? What about people that don't want to hear it? What about the lady years ago that told me if I was going to teach on Christmas, she wasn't coming? It's like, I don't care what the Bible says. Are you going to preach about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in other tongues? Well, I don't want to hear that. Listen, I'm talking about a whole bunch of people are there. I don't want to hear all that. I've already made up my mind what I believe about that, and I don't want to hear it. Don't confuse me with facts. Well, here's what your Bible said. He that is of God heareth God's words. You, therefore, he said to the Pharisees, you hear them not because you're not of God. All you want to do is find something wrong with what I said. All you want to do is argue and fuss over something that I said. You want to work a miracle. You don't even believe in them. You want to make a mountain out of a little mohill because you want to find something wrong with what somebody said. You didn't hear the truth. You heard them say something, so you want to pick it. It's like politics. Politicians do that too. Or go to chapter 10 and verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. What will they do? How do you know what to follow? Teach. Me, thy ways, O Lord. Well, I don't like to go to those teaching churches. They talk too long. Who do you love? The services last too long. They emphasize the Bible and Jesus too much. <laughs> I've never heard anybody say that. But he said in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall what? They shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hands. Isn't that security? If you believe that, you believe in eternal security. Eternal security. Eternal security is because of eternal love. The problem with a lot of people who propose eternal security is that they are assuming that because they joined church, raised their hand, or went forward, (laughs) that, that they love God. And yet their whole life is, is, is a life that's changeless. It never did change. The things they used to do, they still do. The places they used to go, they still go. Amen. This subject is bigger than all of us. As you can tell by how long I'll preach on if I keep going. It's just a whole lot here. It's the immensity of it and the fact that we can't understand. We won't get any of this unless God reveals it. God has to show us this. I'm telling you this. You can hear my words. If you don't want to hear it, it goes in one ear and right out the other one. 
You might be thinking about a, a golf match or somebody, you're going to go somewhere to eat and see somebody today, and you're not listening. That's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. Look at John chapter 14 and verse 17. It tells us that the world cannot receive the spirit of truth. They can't. You reckon that's why they're so against it? They don't want that? You reckon that's why? Because they can't get it? I mean, when God begins to give us things we might not want to get, I might be a good Methodist, a good Baptist, or a good something or the other, and our church for a long time has been established in a certain way. There's a certain way we do everything. We don't do anything ever different than that. And somebody comes along and, and well, for example, speaks in tongues, and that's just not something that we do. I know you don't, but now what does the Bible say? Well, I really don't want to know all that. See, that's my problem. I wonder what God thinks. And then somebody wants to argue, say, well, I guess you think everybody has speaking tongues go to heaven. All I'm saying is that they can't receive the Spirit. A natural man, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, he says, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. Why? They're spiritually discerned. Would you agree with me this, that the Spirit of God isn't revealing anything to those that are not His? Isn't it hard to admit that? It is. It's not any easier to teach it. But it's the truth. Now, so then, for next week, if we say we love God, how do we prove it? If you tell me this morning, you sitting here, wherever you are, you say, if I said to you, most every church member will agree to this. Do you love the Lord? Do you love God? Oh, yeah. Amen. What do you mean by that? Well, I, and then they'll tell you what they do. Their works. They begin to describe all the things that they have done. Therefore, a man that does something loves God. And yet they leave out so much. Like Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, you omit the weightier matters of the law. Remember that? So next time I want us to begin with who does, who really does love God? Because we'll take communion next week and the whole object of communion is how much love we have been loved with. And we're going to ask our question, how much do we love him for what he's done? How do we prove it? Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. I pray for a revelation of your word to come to all of us, whether we are right this morning or not right, that our eyes would be open to see what you're saying, that we would understand where we are, that we would be located this morning in light of your word and honest evaluation and judgment of ourselves. Lord, there's a lot of good people here that I believe you brought out. I believe there's some here you need to bring in. And I ask that you would love them as you've loved me. Show them your grace and your loving kindness and draw them to you. I ask you to do that because nothing could be more important in our life than that. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.